Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Keith Yates, Managing Director of Instruct Training, a Leicestershire-based family-run company offering high-quality educational services. Keith, hello. Hi there, Matthew. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, Now, normally, we'd like to get straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how has this affected your operations? Uh, In a number of ways, actually, Matthew. Um, We are a... um, you know, independent company uh, working for schools. Uh, we have um, taken advantage of the furlough scheme for a large proportion of the team, um, which has meant changing lots of practices. We've managed to stay in touch with all of our learners uh, and certainly all of our, our schools and clients and working in a very different way. Um, sort of financially, uh, we, ha- we haven't, of course, been able to, to meet many of our targets, though... Our contracts are annual with schools and all of our schools' clients. We've got very good relationships with them. Um, they've asked for various you know, alternative working methods, which is going well, and we're being looked after, um, which, is, which is fantastic. It's good to have that support. And what sort of alterations have you had to make within the business? Uh, mostly welfare, to be honest. We're a, we're a small team, but we're, we're very much a family. Um, so our, our management team here are checking in at least weekly with, with various sort of fun quizzes and things like that with the team themselves, sending home lots of sort of research projects to improve practice, uh, monitoring all of that, as well as with the course, the courses that we provide to young people, um, adapting sort of online strategies and telephone learning and, and, and you know, web-based, web-based calls, uh, which, is, which has been interesting. Uh, but we're becoming sort of dab hands at it. So it's um, it's an interesting world, a very different world. We're a vocational provision, so we're, we're used to being hands in the soil and laying bricks and, you know, following construction programs. So developing strategies for, for theory-based work, um, still in that, that fun context and um, meeting the expectation of the young people has been challenging but rewarding. I'm sure it has. Um, I know a lot of businesses have had to change the way in which they operate. Uh, and also, I know that you don't typically operate uh, most of your business out of uh, an office sort of environment. Uh, however, uh, each week on the uh, podcast, we have a topical question uh, about a certain issue. And this week's question is, what role do you think the office will play in the future of work, uh, both within your own organization and the wider world? Well, I think I think for ourselves, um, as you rightly point out, you know we are very much in the field. Um, the office remains very busy, you know, and, and if we do go into a second lockdown and various things, we've, we've got policies and practices, and we're rehearsing lessons and different schemes to to meet those needs. So the office will become uh, used a lot more. Um, we've had to put various, um, you know, physical resources in place to be able to do that i think sort of globally to some extent a lot of friends of mine and and colleagues too are of course working from home now i I think for businesses generally 
I, I think, again, from a welfare perspective, a lot of your people um, are actually quite enjoying not having the commute, therefore being productive. Um, of course, you know, staying at home, the mental well-being for a lot of you, a lot of people, sorry, is is very challenging. So I think for businesses to to sort of capitalise on on that and, and offer opportunities to members of their teams to continue to work from home could be a great a great thing, particularly for the environment. What do you think is going to happen in the commercial real estate market if uh, lots of businesses decide to shift to permanently working from home? Well, yeah, there'll, there'll be a, a a lot of empty space, won't there? Um, I really don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I suppose it. Uh, I suppose it. You know, opens up lots of opportunities for. Um, you know, certainly people who are you know, fallen on hard times or potentially are, are homeless. You know, let, let's convert what were offices into. You know, sharing these resources for people less fortunate, perhaps. Well, I'm sure the shard would provide quite a lot of room, uh, but we should, <laughs> we should move on. Um, now, we should discuss leadership. After all, this is the Leaders' Council podcast. Um, I always like to start this part of the uh, program off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Wow. Um, that's a very interesting question. Uh, it's something that we've looked into fairly recently, actually, and um, we've used a lot of this sort of um, downtime, if you like, or certainly not face-to-face time with our management team to really look at that. Um, there is a stark difference between being a manager and a leader, um, mm. but I think, personally. Um, a lot of it, again, centred around welfare, centred around getting a team uh, and, and that sense of family and that connection being fully versed on everything that it is that you um, are asking people to do, being prepared to do it yourself, um, to lead people to success for the business and, you know, for for everything else, really. And how would you describe your day-to-day leadership style? Day-to-day? Well, at the moment, it's it's very different. As I say, it's Mm. it's very much on on the phone. Um, I think from personal experience, we recently moved premises, and I think this is a fairly good example. Um, of course, you know there, there are strategies and various plans to, to convert a warehouse into what is now our, our fantastic sort of base for, for, for learning. Um, but being there yourself, hands on the tools, you know, uh, being at the forefront, being available to answer questions to help people through challenging situations, being open and honest and, and reflective too, I think. Now, let's talk a bit about your background uh, and where you came to this uh, form of leadership. Do you have any role models or were there any experiences early on in your career that really shaped the way you lead today? Uh, I I think so, yeah. I I sort of um, went through a couple of redundancies, which, you know, I was incredibly inspired by the young people that we were and incredibly inspired by um, the provisions that myself and a colleague had had put together for some of the schools we were working with at the time. Um, I was a bit of a young pup, really, and um, was set to work through through a school with a an, an older chap um, who remains a very, very dear friend of mine. And um, he had run businesses in the past. He, he was a fantastic teacher, fantastic leader. Um, and, and we spent 
well, I, I spent more time with him than I, than I did my own family for, for a long time. Um, so I suppose you, you sort of sit on the, the shoulders of giants, as a, certainly as a young person. Um, and I think really just putting yourself in lots of different situations, meeting as many different people, as many different leaders as possible to learn their style and, and sit back and listen um, really has is, is, is got us to where, certainly where I am uh, uh, today. Now, when we talk about uh, leadership in the next generation, obviously uh, your organization does quite a lot to foster that uh, for youngsters up and coming. Uh, but what can we do? as a society, uh, to encourage young people to be their best? Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> that opens a big can of worms for us as, a, as an alternative provision, <laughs> really. Of, of course, what we do is by far the best thing, you know, since sliced bread. Uh, <laughs> it didn't, of course. But for a lot of young people, um, I, I think that the, the current curriculum for a, a lot of young people within the UK is inaccessible. And there's a there's a heavy focus on academia, um, which is completely valuable if you're of academic mind. Now, a lot of the young people that we work with are not necessarily of, of academic mind. Find it very difficult for various you know special educational needs or um, social emotional mental health concern. Actually, they're not built for the traditional classroom by opening up opportunities to learn in a very different context, um, particularly for kinesthetic learners, um, to have access to vocational curriculums, to have access to exciting new experiences, to be able to travel to uh, you know, fantastic places locally to them where they wouldn't, might not necessarily get the opportunity to explore, broadens the mind, certainly solves lots of sort of mental health and confidence and self-esteem issues, um, allowing them to, to focus and, and reintegrate back with the clustering. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Instruct Training? <laughs> well, um, we're, we're working on, I think, the plans through from uh, A to Z, really, uh, with with the world of COVID uh, at the moment and, and the, the you know drastic uh, effect it's having uh, on well globally you know people, um, we're very much looking forward to having young people return to us. We'll be working in very different ways. We're preparing um, better to to work in an online context should we need to. Um, there are around about 300 young people that access our provisions. And with careful planning, we don't necessarily see that there will be a dip within that. Um, though, this will be the first academic year that we as a company won't be growing. Mm. Um, though we have opportunities with, with some new client schools to do so, we haven't been able to recruit, we haven't been able to train at this time to, to enable that growth simply because we would we normally recruit this side of the summer holiday to train, to ensure the standards are there, rather than it coming to the, the 1st of September or the new academic year and expecting everybody to be able to engage, educate and inspire our young people. Well, it's going to be a uh, long journey, I'd imagine, and I'd love to have you back on the program later on uh, so we can discuss this in further depth. But for now, Keith, thank you.
Thank you, Matthew. It's uh, really nice to talk to you. That was Keith Yates, Managing Director of Instruct Training. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with, he'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. What a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more 
looks upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, well, I do I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top is absolutely vital for a, a for a business. Mm-hmm football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out. He didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly... Um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing... Um, in it, only a few games before I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final and it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, 
be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into him because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, mm. out. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again the leadership that I'll show you, you got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." <laughs> so that—I've uh, had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you to. It won't be too long to tell you. 
Uh, I was in a jersey or Channel Lines jersey or jersey two or three mm. years ago in most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You've want, you got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a... a at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it's... It, uh, um, and again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches. People must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with? Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really. Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. 
their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, That's a good they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I'm... when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players, we had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, 
you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's. You're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.